What you need to understand, you see, is and cannot be a feudalist state, nor a theocratic one at that, because it lacks the grand mythology and the ideology to justify a fight from grace or the order it imposes on society. Its own funding mythology involves the dueling for leadership between the kami and so on and so on. <laughs> There is no great chain of being, there is no mandate of heaven, there is no bakufu or higher social contract. What it there is, is a complete denial of ideology, and accepting this lack of ideology as ideology itself. And if we consider that, then it becomes apparent what system is Rokugan. So, what system is Rokugan? It becomes obvious that between that pretension of no ideology, the rewriting of its own history, its acceptance as the only way a society can be organized, its ubiquitous collegiation with its identity with civilization, the devaluation of its external cultures, the pretense that its uh, culture and ethnicity is hegemonic, and so on and so on, presents itself as the sole goal that every single human being should strive for under heaven. This is apparent that Rokugan is neoliberalism. It just seems weird to us because this neoliberalism does not have to contend itself with democratic pretensions and is fully allowed to embrace the fundamental right behavior and so allowed to be the rent-shaking bear of feudalism it aspires so much to be. Hello, today we are again with the skeleton crew, but we are not playing. We are going into our more asshole mode for a bit of asshole talk. Just talking about stuff instead of playing games. It's Brad, Ludo, and Charlie. And today, on a topic suggested by Ludo... Yeah, I mean... Basically, it's an attempt to answer that question that every single L5R player asks. L5R, why are you like this? Why are you like this? L5R, why are you like this? It really is like a question that shouldn't haunt as deeply as it does. And yet, you know, it's it's that classic. The longer you do something, the more you go, just fucking why? I mean, I know that Charlie must ask these every day. I I ask it of the game, and I ask it of the community, and I ask it of myself. <laughs> uh, I deeply, deeply often find myself asking why. <laughs> and it's one of those things where um, I love this thing, um, and I will still keep asking why. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it's, there's an important level when you really, when you, you know, I, we, we talked about this at one point off camera recording, I don't know, away from you lovely people. And I mentioned, you know, the, the three layers of fan, you know, the idea that when you're first into a thing, you're just like, yeah, this is neat. And then in the second layer of the thing, you're like, Ooh, parts of this are gross, but I can work with that. And then the third layer of fan, the truest layer of fan of this is all gross and I still love it. And I think we're all there. 
Well, yeah, you kind of have to be if you have any critical sense, you know. L5R sucks. L5R is so uh, so good. Yeah, I, I, I hate <laughs> I hate L5R, but I love L5R. You know, uh, I think I realized, I think that was the moment when I realized why I love Anima Seekers, because that's their attitude to anything. It really, I I mean, not to plug it. Posting posting sucks, but posting actually kind of (laughs) rocks. Like, not to plug another podcast that isn't paying us, but hey, go listen to the anime sickos. They talk about things the way all nerds you know in real life do, where when a nerd's excited about something you know, because they open up with like, God, this is so terrible. And then they tell you why they like it. Yeah, shout out to anime sickos. Uh... Which I don't think play L5R, otherwise they will add it to the fifth pillar of disgrace. Yeah, uh, like... I... It's... The problems with L5R are manifold. We're going to talk about some of them today, but I mean, I really think, Luna, this is a rich field in which we could cultivate years of content of just like, why is this terrible? Yeah, but that's the thing. Why is this like this? That's the the central crux. Because I think a lot of the criticism of L5R fails because it's superficial. It uh, does not have a framework. And actually, I have a framework in which I try to to explore this. And it's not, there is some, if this framework is well applied, I think there is a lot of things that we can learn about how to better make Alphavar, you know, do the things that we want it to do. And also something about the artistic merits of Alphavar. So before we go into that, I mean, uh, I was talking, I told you, Brad, the the way that I usually break down learning a game uh, and what I try to get from a game, I try to first to take uh, a reflection of what the game is sold as, what the game text tells me what it is about. But the next step is actually checking what the game is about, what the game actually in practical terms it is, how the mechanics, how the lore, how everything comes together, that this is actually what playing the game is like. And then I go into learning what is the main engine of a game. I try to get the important rules that I want to have 100% right, and then the the things that are worth taking to other to other games. That's usually how I go up, approach a new game. And L five R is very curious. If you go into the first two points, if you ask what L five R says it is about, and what L five R actually is about. So there's nothing new that we have not discussed before. In fact. Uh, if you listen to our four hour session zero, you know that that was something that we spent most of the session trying to nail down. Uh, and one of the questions going about was what for each of us L5R was about. And at the time, I kind of dropped it uh, unexpected on you. Uh, so I think before we continue, I think it's a good moment now 
uh, a few months later so that we can maybe verbalize better what L5R essentially as a game is for you. So, so I mean, and I'm going to answer the same way I did way back when you asked that. And I have to say, like, I really did enjoy, like, it's weird. I th- We talk about a lot in video games, you know, that there's such thing as gameplay and story segregation. Um, you know, the fact that in the Uncharted games, you've got Nathan Drake who regularly boasts having not killed people. And then in every level, you run and gun your whole way through murdering countless people. And, you know, it, it leads to a lot of weird stuff. And that does happen a lot in RPGs. And once you mentioned that a couple weeks ago, I was like, oh, shit, that is a bit of a problem. I think, though, answering your proper question, uh, L5R to me is about trying is characters torn between doing what's morally good to them and what is right. Because in a lot of ways, the samurai system is not necessarily A, to us as people experiencing it as players, but B, even to a lot of our characters, there's things about it that are horrible to them. You know, if your character's a Sparrow Minor Clan member, the treatment of the peasant class in a lot of places is fucking abhorrent. And you know, though, that that's what's morally good. There's the wheel, there's celestial order. There's the met, there's the emperor. And from him springs all order and law. So you're torn a lot of times between this idea of what's good and what's right. You know, it, you find out that, you know, certain families are engaged in horrible imperial crimes, which is not morally good, but without these crimes being committed, the empire can't exist. So is it right? And that's what I think L5R is about. See, I don't actually remember what I said in the session zero. Um, and I don't know if I think it's about the same thing or not. Um, but I'll try. Um I agree with a lot of Brad said, like for me, L5R is about navigating through hypocrisy um, and being in those situations where, you know, what is considered to be the right thing to do by the society you live in uh, and what you personally think is the right thing to do. And then maybe like a third right thing to do uh, that comes from somewhere else. Um, they don't always line up. You've got to maybe make some tough choices. Like, uh, L5R for me has always been about like, I'm in a situation and there's no easy answer. Um, so what do we do? Um, and like building stories kind of out of those situations. Um, and again, like mechanically, uh, it, it very much kind of sets you up for that, um, in this, uh, newest edition too. Um, like you can tell that it's part of the, the intended, uh, gameplay style. Um, and it's also in like a lot of the, in the fiction, in the, in the RPG texts, like there's, there's multiple ways of interpreting different things. Um, so that kind of reflects how there are different interpretations of, um, 
you know, what the correct decision is. I like it because it's, it's not always as clear what you need to do. Um, and yeah, I don't know if that's what I said back in, what is it now? March, April, <laughs> May, <laughs> whenever we had session zero. So who knows? Yeah, even at the time, we were kind of the most general uh, brand witch. And I'm going to elaborate a bit on my central thesis because it's it turns out that it's, I really, the more I think about it, the less things I find that contradict it. So it ended up being reinforced. And that's how this episode ended up existing. Is that at its center... An L5R game is about being people that are middle management in a brutal system. You are extremely privileged compared to the majority of population. Easily, you have a better life than 90% of people. But at the same point, you are not so far up that uh, you escape the conflict between the things that you want to do, your desires, how you would Rather, the world was how you would want your life to be, and the duties, the, the the tasks, the social assignments that are forced upon you, your role as perpetuating the same system from which you benefit. It is a game in which you know two hard choices, and considering what is not clearly the right decision or what might actually get the the outlook that you want to do, you can still do a lot of harm reduction. And if you choose poorly, or if you actually don't care, you can do a lot of harm, and uh, you can perpetuate those systems. And in fact, even if you are doing, doing harm reduction, the same way in which you're probably going to do it uh, is supported by the very system that harms peoples by the millions. So you are in this situation in which you have to choose what you do, what can you do to alleviate it, but you cannot really change the system. That seems to be a thing that your character is going to always be struggling with. So what ends up happening is that you have this eternal game of musical shares, either fighting for titles, fame, or self-actualization, whichever form that manifests to your character and their archetype. And... All these things about the game, I think they are true in all dimensions. It's one of those things that either you're playing a game set during Winter Court, you're playing Emerald Magistrates, or you are defending the continuation of this system by fighting against the Shadowlands. You are always at the front lines of class warfare. You are always making decisions that ultimately make use of your privileged position to make things worse or better. But always on a scale which you are not able to change the larger structures that actually limit you. At the same point, they put you in this position where you can actually make those calls. I mean, it definitely... 
So when, you know, Ludo first mentioned this idea, what, in July? Something like that. Time doesn't matter. Time's a flat circle. Um, It definitely hit a chord, I think, with um, the way Ludo described it initially. But all right, let's. I want to see you show some work here, Ludo. Okay, the first thing that I have to say is that the latest edition it has a few options that allow you to break the the mold, that allow you to play outside of this, uh, and would even let you abandon this structure altogether. So, this is accepting this premise. Already that there are these things that challenge that when you play uh, people from lower classes, when you play outsiders, uh, of course, you are not going to be bound like this the same way. And it's not going to be as central to the game. And uh, the thing with this is that uh, when you think about this and you think about the setting, Nothing of it really dictates how it is like. Uh, what I mean like is we had the celestial order, we had the celestial wheel, but we have all these things in game that supposedly justify why things are the way they are, but they really don't. Because only on the surface level, you know, having nobles, having bureaucrats, having Having these religious beliefs that don't make much theological sense. All of this, uh, it's only a coat of paint of uh, to make it look like uh, the feudal theocratic authoritarian setting that L5R is supposed to be. But that's not how that works in in real-world examples. That's not how feudal or authoritarian or theocratic uh, forms of administration and organization work. That's that's not even how they work in fantasy. So you have this coat of paint and uh, you will be inclined to say, oh, this is like, because this is done by white guys in middle in middle America that this is just a paint coat over European nobility, but it's not that either. There is a coat over something, but it's not immediately clear what is it about. And there is this, the more I look at it, it, the more I kind of recognize it at the same time that it kind of felt odd to me. Because this is not like any real-life culture. But it is built up on something that feels very real. And that is that is how I got to this idea that, wait a minute, these are structures that resist on our life, or modern life. These are not trying to emulate... Uh, some uh, specific culture from the real world. This is not going for a particular fantasy vibe. This is basically a feudal theocratic take on all reality as humans in neoliberal hell. 
And L5R is probably the way it is because of neoliberalism. And there is this thing about FPGs. It is a form of art that has the dubious honor of only existing on an actual concise and relevant matter on neoliberalism. It started on the 70s at the same time. So we don't have actually an idea of how role-playing games have been shaped by neoliberalism. You know, it's not like uh, we know how movies change it. We know how literature changes. Uh, We know how advertisement changes. We know how life changes with that. We don't really know how role-playing games change it because they always existed only this way. So, of course, ne- of course neoliberalism is going to be soaking, soaking on L5R, especially being something created in the 90s. But I think it stands a bit more. I think it not only is neoliberal as far as it, it is a product of neoliberalism, but there's a lot of principles of neoliberalism that are baked in into the bones of the setting. And you end up replicating them. And that's why things work in game like they do and why they feel so natural to some players and say they feel so defensive is because they resonate true because they fit the same neoliberal structures that they exist in and they know. So you see, for our, our dear listeners... One of the things me and Ludo and Charlie and Evan and Sam, absent as he may be, do occasionally talk about is that in addition to the, you know, classic, as we've already mentioned, L5R sucks, L5R is great dichotomy, the fact that, and, you know, Ludo reached this conclusion, we've discussed it in other ways, these elements of the setting, if they do exist, explain a lot of things and do really diversify it because real world feudal powers had a lot of ways of controlling things that L5R doesn't ever even touch. Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but as we thought, as you know, when Ludo brought up this L5R is neoliberalism idea, it did also kind of make some of the facts that L5R doesn't use from actual feudal theocratic societies make less sense. And makes sense why they weren't there. Um, so, I know, Ludo, that your next point does bring up something much more relevant to our current actual play. Yeah, uh, because, uh, you know, the parallels to the, the degrees to which neoliberalism influenced L5R was not a thing that I considered. Uh, and in fact, I don't remotely touch open it on our session zero. And this is actually something that uh, came up during my prep for uh, for Crimson Gold Agonies. So because of the subject matter and the core elements of the campaign that we decided, and if you are a regular listener, you know what we're talking about, namely the events that led to the situation of the mod, 
and the situation with Tirosaka and the situation with the Scorpion Clan. As I kept researching for it, I started to think more about the way that the Empire interacts with its moment, uh, with these moments of crisis and disaster, and what are their priority and their relationship with their own people, how relief is organized, what happens after relief, what reconstruction looks like. And for some reason, the more I read on that, I did not think about um, uh, the urban planning efforts of real cultures in the past. I did not think how material conditions shaped one's relationship with the environment or with natural disaster. I kept thinking about uh, uh, Naomi Klein's book on shock therapy, and I could not stop thinking about the premise of that book. Uh, but before all that, we touched the neoliberalism, and a lot of people there are probably thinking, what the hell is neoliberalism? So I guess we should cl- uh, clarify that point before, before I go deep into what I found thinking about Naomi Klein's uh, model and applying it to L5R. So tell us, um, tell me, tell tell the audience as though you were trying to explain it to me, because audience, I will tell you now, I need to have everything explained to me like I'm five years old. So one of you, explain to me and to the audience, what okay, is so- what does is neoliberalism as is? As an important note, um, some of you American listeners will, as soon as Ludo begins his exploitation, become immediately familiar with this. Uh, We in the land of the free refer to this as libertarianism, but they're the same ideals just under a different banner. Ludo, you're good. You're up, Ludo. Yeah, Brad, do you want to to give a quick rundown before I lose lose myself in the weeds? Sure. Uh, so neoliberalism, libertar- libertarianism, uh, they're not identical. Neoliberalism does, however, carry forward the idea of eliminating price control, deregulating capital markets. It's a political ideology wherein uh, you take capitalism to its natural extent. You don't believe that the government should have that hand in controlling parts of the market. Um, In Europe, I suppose, it doesn't have the same aspects that the American equivalent does, where in America, libertarians are also very focused on keeping the Constitution as the Founding Fathers intended, you know, deregulating gun control, all of that. But they do still have the very wide open, let's no taxes for anyone, the market will control itself ideals yeah and i think you presenting on these uh, aspects which are probably the manifestations of neoliberalism that people can recognize the most as that uh probably it does a great job at showing the problem with uh, neoliberalism and uh, understanding its role on the world is that people only recognize it by the most obvious trappings because Neoliberalism is not something that, uh, you know, these 
these uh, fanatics uh, believe on. It's the way our world is building. And it is to such a degree that uh, basically everything that uh, exists in this model is neoliberal. Uh, it's just the way that we grow up. It is the way things are organized. Basically, there is no neutral position, and neutral position is the status quo, and the status quo is neoliberalism. Uh, there is, of course, an understanding of it as an economic political entity. But the thing is, it does not stay that way. It, it affects everything. And because basically, after Second World War II, there was this idea that uh, there was always to be one dominant ideology. And to capitalism, that at the time was Kenyanism, which was basically, it was a, a capitalist society with a strong social security. It was basically social democratic ideas. It's like, for us to save capitalism, we needed to share some of the wealth. So we needed to have labor reform. We needed to have support networks. There was all these kinds of concessions that uh, needed to be done. And these remained popular with everyone because just like neoliberalism today, it was the way seen as the way to do things. And basically every president of the United States, including Nixon, of that period, they were strong advocates of these measures. But something changed, and that something was the university and school. Uh, oh. uh, and I, I do want to jump in here. I, you know, I, I quietly let. So, in addition to the change Ludo's going to mention, uh, neoliberalism in America took off with. You also might be familiar with a lot of its ideals brought about to you as Reaganomics, uh, a general G Ronald Reagan's principles were very heavily. I mean, besides his military spending, very heavily neoliberal inspired. All right, Ludo, that's all. Yeah, because Reagan was a, a strong follower of uh, the University of Chicago. Uh, Friedman's school of economy that uh, started neoliberalism. And again, ignoring all the trappings, uh, neoliberalism has a simple premise. It sees the free market as the ultimate form of management and believes that anything that is not done by or regulated by a deregulated market as bad, as inferior. So during the neoliberalism, the purpose of the state and public propriety is to take control of anything that is commons and channel it into the private sector. And this was shown by the Friedman's ideas that, you know, there should not be public education. Instead, there should be only charter schools. There should be privatization of everything, of water, of electricity, of any kind of facilities. Uh, and of course, nobody really was implementing those ideas because, spoiler alert, this is really bad. And this changed uh, on Chile when after failed attempts of the Chicago boys trying to get uh, 
their measures implemented, they got the chance to force them into the world at the barrel of a gun when they supported the overthrow of the Salvador Allende's regime in favor of Pinochet, and Pinochet started creating the blueprint of the neoliberal state of how to destroy everything commons and channel it to the private sector. And the success, using air codes of Chile, was used to sell this model across the world. And so we have implementations of that model in Argentina, on Indonesia, and the most relevant uh, in terms of propagation uh, has to be for sure the, uh, the embrace of it by uh, by those creatures like uh, Reagan and Thatcher. And that's when uh, it started to permeate more than economics. It became a way to see the world. Basically, everything produced on the 80s and after that has been produced on this framework. It is this constant idea, for example, as Thatcher said, that there is no society. There's only individuals. At the same time that that Tina started to get uh, popular. Uh, he, he, the ideology that uh, neoliberalism has to be the only way because there is no alternative. And it's propagated to the degree which we have today, uh, which exploiting the collapse of uh, other powers or uh, getting other powers to follow uh, ne uh, neoliberalism uh, through coup or through market pressures. Most of the world today is deep neoliberal. So one of the things in L5R is very much that, and I think maybe some listeners might say, well, there isn't uh, a private sector, there isn't um, private property strictly, everything is technically um, you know, owned, by the owned by the emperor, which does make it private property. but. Um, not the same way as um, we have it now. Well, maybe in England we do because England, the land does all belong to Queenie. Um, but certainly you'll have people in America being like, well, that's not the case. Um, and you'll have L5R fans being, well, that's not, that's not what happens in L5R. So how does um, the, the private sector um, tie in to this particular game? Well, I think that's a question of losing yourself in aesthetics, because as we see, and this is why it's important to see that while this game is on the 90s, the tendencies of neoliberalism are, funny enough, replicated in game, is that neoliberalism is not a stable system. So the free market only exists uh, to a point. Then we have the situation which we have today, which we have rentism and fascism. Basically, the moment things start backing down, you're going to need an authoritarian, fascistic point to keep things working between air codes, or you're going to have where everything is basically neo-feudal or rentist, as they call it, you know, as you don't own the seeds that you plant, you rent them. You are basically a serf working to different uh, to different masters depending on whatever is on the other side of the of the of the app and the thing is on a on a light 
on a long line enough, neoliberalism tends to become something that maybe is more, more similar to that. So I would argue that the existence of private property is not necessary to have the, uh, the, the neoliberal artifacts. That, that is probably a quirk of how the way this came on our world, because the same principle is be at its core is to channel everything that is commons into the hands of a few, which is something that uh, El Farvar does. And historically, historically, neoliberalism did a great job in doing. It did when it failed in Russia, in which... Uh, even without the private sector, it just pulled everything in the hands of oligarchs. It did in Indonesia, uh, on Chile, it did on China, and uh, it definitely did on Pakistan. The same way, like it took pretty well to uh, to Saudi Arabia. A private sector is just as necessary for uh, neoliberalism as democracy is. It might be the Kirks that it had when it emerged, but as time goes on, it quickly sheds out those disguises as uh, as it does. Uh, you just need to see how much Regonomics sold itself on the liberty to choice, the liberty of consumer, and ever since those beasts were unleashed upon the world, everyone's liberties have actually been constrained. Another point that I think is kind of interesting that you made in another conversation that I I wonder now how much it led into this um, was at one point we were discussing, you know, and this is relevant to our game, how we could provide some much needed economic relief to the city of Hirosaka. And we debated a lot of things and the realization of how much capital in Rokugan is backed up. So money, money makes the world go round. Some people will tell you in a lot of, in the feudal era, in most of the world, money was backed by the weight of the coin of what the coins were made out of gold coins were valuable because they were well made out of gold. And that's why you constantly see, if you're totally familiar with the system, the trope of someone weighing money, um, in L5R, and in a thing that I think is kind of fascinating, and you do make this point in the document, money isn't backed by its weight in gold. Money is backed by being connected to the value of rice. Um, now, a lot of people who don't really know a lot about economics bring up the fact, well, America at one point had a gold-backed currency system, and yes, we absolutely did. Um, and people who know even less about economics will say that the economy was stronger then and they don't know what they're talking about. Um, but a monetary system backed up by capital can create a lot of interesting problems. As we mentioned during that particular uh, event, because we're happening so close to when the tsunamis that devastated the Cranelands happening game. Um, the crane grow most of the rice in Rokugan. This is a canon fact. It means that currency gains value as it becomes rarer. Ergo, the koku in Rokugan is now worth a lot more in setting because there's not a lot of rice. And so 
a token that you can turn in for theoretically a year's worth of rice is much more valuable because of how things work. And it's very bizarre and confusing. Um, and I hate it. But we realized that there wasn't an easy way for us to just economically boom Hirosaka because capital backed by capital creates its own unique problems. Yes, not to mention how uh, there is no central uh, way to manage uh, the value of it. Uh, every clan has, a, has their own mint, for example. And uh, you don't have a banking system. Uh, the most you have are rice lenders, which are basically speculators on the value of future crops and current pro- crops. As you can imagine, these disaster causes a lot of reorganization of that to the benefit of the clans that have bigger uh, stocks of rice, which they keep only for lending purposes. And this is the thing that I started thinking. Uh, this is why I wanted to think about Naomi Klein's book on shock therapy. Because uh, Klein proposes a type of cat- capitalism for the modern era. Uh, a characterization of how late-stage capitalism operates. That uh, An analysis of how all these neoliberal policies that we have had across the world, since Reagan and Thatcher and so on, uh, created a world where everything is failing. The only thing that you can really count is that things will fail. And you see that by both the people making constant big shorts and how, because things keep failing, it becomes very profitable to bet on failure. To, and so you have this disaster capitalism. Because failure is the only thing it can count on. Uh, things are organized so that they cannibalize existing systems and structures. Uh, at the same time that they do this, they assure their continuation. Uh, we see examples of this already in setting. One could argue that the Crab Clan is a, a clan that is going on a constant disaster. Their entire economy, their entire way of being, justifying their class existence depends on an ongoing disaster or the threat of a disaster. And they benefit materially from these conditions. And uh, on a more macro level, the power of the samurai uh, class is maintained by becoming necessary and they manufacture every year local disasters that do this that is the sole purpose of the summer wars they are ubiquitous and they are essential for the economic survival of certain clans and these constant ongoings it does not change a lot on the system because everyone is invested in the system perpetuating itself. So wars in Rokugan, they are, they are dead. They are basically another type of natural disaster. 
that ultimately does not change much. Land is going back and forth constantly. Hostage might be a token. And for the most part, it's just to just another controlled uh, disaster, which ends up making the samurai class stronger, ends up maneuvering certain positions. It ends up uh, putting more power in the central structures of the clans rather than the local wards and the communities. And the logical conclusion of Alphavar is a setting in which the only thing that you can bet will happen is that the system will continue itself and there will be disasters because the system continues the way it is, was shown during the custody of uh, AG over the game, where basically you had every single generation, you had a new apocalypse. There was always these escalating shock events that were needed to maintain the game and interest in the game. So even on that level, it was operating in the logic of uh, disaster capitalism. And that's something that even uh, uh, Fantasy Flight Games is not immune to. They are much more subdued, but if uh, we look at the, the history events, they've been a, a series of shocks that has been rising in intensity with less and less recovery time. So we have our own system of disaster capitalism also there. And I think that one could argue that all oh, this this type of this generates conflict that is necessary to the to the game to be story to to the involvement on the card game and the RPG. And I could concede that point, but I would I would be failing my duty if I did not point out that it is odd that that is always how the way that these things tend to go no matter who is at the helm of the game that it's always going to be tending to disaster happening that these disasters are, are always happening because of the system so that you are always focusing on the disaster and how it's going to benefit you or who is going to benefit from the disaster to the point that you are only interested in preserving the system which a lot of the time allows these disasters to happen, and you are never, ever, ever, ever facing the system or addressing the problems or doing something to prevent the next disaster to happen. You know, I remember when I first started to really, you know, deep dive into L5R lore as a younger brat, and, you know, there's a whole other episode, me and Luda will have to have at some point where we talk about why lore is bad. Um, but, um, an important thing that I came to the conclusion about, and, you know, it's a joke that I've heard other fans make is at least in the AEG canon, the Hante dynasty ruled for a thousand years of perfect, pretty much peace and established a status quo. And then in less than 200 years, there were five different emperors and the status quo still remains the same throughout all of that. Now, not only is a thousand years a crazy long time for any historical dynasty to ever rule. Um, the fact that there were four regime changes in t- 
200 years and the status quo wasn't shaken up at all by that is not just weird in a fantasy writers don't understand scale thing. It's just weird in general. And once you said, you know, that's another big like hmm moment that led to me starting to realize what Ludo was talking about. Um, even in the FFG timeline, you know, we've got the Hantes, a thousand years of perfect peace and status quo. And in a decade, we've seen the, you, we've seen, uh, a long-term battle between two clans get settled, a bunch of other wild shit happen, and still no major changes to the status quo. And if it ain't broke, you don't fix it, right? I mean, all the all all the important people uh don't see a problem with it, so why should it change? Yeah, I mean and that's like, you know, some people will point out, you know, you're making a big deal about this, but you're not considering how many other fantasy settings have thousand year dynasties. And you're absolutely right. That's a common trope. I mean, I can think of two big recent examples off the top of my head that have them. But you've got to take stuff like this as a whole, not as individual elements. The thousand year dynasty and then. 200 years of four new emperors and then no status quo change isn't the only, you know, aha, my entire, the entire argument rests upon this, but it is a symptom of what the argument does rest upon. So one thing, um, and this kind of backtracks a little bit um, and it, it does kind of make me think um, Brad of what you're saying where, you know, um, you know, things, things don't change. The status quo uh, just is as it is. As I'm kind of just thinking of Boris Johnson at the moment um, because he, like his government um, is very much like, Oh, Hey, you know what? We need to fail the NHS because then I'll profit from it. Um, and I'm in a position of power where I can do that. Um, but all the while still, you know, um, you know, putting forth, uh, this idea that actually, no, we're not going to touch the NHS, even as we defund it, we have these systems in place. We're always going to, um, look after our health system, look after our people. And that kind of, kind of made me think, um, a little bit of, um, the blessing, uh, where in L5R every year, um, you know, the Imperials via the Mia are basically like, I think you need um, relief aid. You, they'll point at like one group or something. You need relief aid, so we'll give it to you. Um, whereas rather than having a safety net that kind of covers everybody. Um, so how does... How does the blessing like? Is there a way that um, that kind of ties into um, this this idea of the neoliberal influence or the neoliberal lens? Like, um, like how does it does it kind of work beyond my kind of basic <laughs> grasp? 
I think you're nailing it in the head because the blessing is exactly the kind of thing that looks like a neoliberal structure on the way it operates, you know. Because relief is the is how disaster capitalism makes money. It is and on the case of uh, something similar on a pseudo feudal society like uh, L5R relief is the necessary part to reinforce this control. As you said it very well, it is decided to the imperial families who gets this benefit. So there is a clear uh, a reinforcement of power on that. A disaster happens, someone else's power is decreased, most likely of the local populations and the local nobility, and for it to be repaired in the future, it is done on the terms set out by who gives relief. And these mirrors again on the on the real world how disaster capitalism does because you know when a tsunami destroys uh, destroys a series of fishing villages the relief is going to be given to multinational companies that then build massive hotels on the beach there. And it's depowering even more the already devastated uh, communities. And not to mention that a lot of these uh, benefits are most often than not, they are loans. The vast majority of it are loans. And it's how uh, uh, neoliberalism does the current uh, neo-colonialism and neo-imperialism, which also reflects that uh, the blessing and the way it operates makes the clans more and more dependent on the on the throne and on its decision. The more disasters happen, so it does the effect that it should do under the premise of being relief for the people, actually what it does is there's nothing to prevent further disasters, but assures that the inevitable disasters are going to only reinforce the existing order. It really does just make me think there must be, there must be courtiers whose entire job is to just be making friends with the right people just in case there's a disaster so that they've already got those palms greased, so they can already be the ones who will get the blessing uh, if needed over other people who may not have... Because um, yeah, not, not all samurai are on the same kind of level. You're going to have some samurai um, who went to um, you know, the, the better schools and, and learned how to manipulate the system to their advantage, and then you're going to have maybe some poorer samurai who didn't go to that particular school, but they still get sent to the same court because they're still the best that that like local area has maybe. Um, and you know, who is going to be the one consistently benefiting, um, like the one who's probably going to get the blessing more. They might not strictly need it more. They still might need it definitely. Um, but the need might be on different levels, but you can see it still going to, the person who made the right friends, who was able to make the right bribes, etc., which is just super reminiscent of, and again, Boris Johnson, but Boris Johnson. <laughs> and like, I, I think a lot of people who who are listening and play the game are like, yeah, that's that's probably that's that's a big part of the game. Um, you know, are, are you complaining about that being part of the game? And I think like um, something important to take away from this is 
Um, this isn't us saying L5R um, is a product of neoliberalism and therefore everything about it is is trash and terrible. It, it's just observations like we're observing. Yeah, you know, you do get those plot points, but those plot points do come about because of the the um, the lens that you this world was created through, I think, is a terrible way of saying it. I don't know. Uh, no, I actually, I would say the, the opposite, far from it. You know, it actually gives a lot of credit to the world and makes, gives it a lot of merit from the artistic sense. And uh, if you uh, use this critical analysis, you're going to get a better relationship and understanding of the game, which then you can use it to do the things that you do. because. The thing that I'm thinking is, well, I can see the mirrors of disaster capitalism in the game. There are structures that work the same way that disaster capitalism works here, except instead of just making absurd amount of money, like, you know, like how it's happening nowadays with the, with the economic disaster and the pandemic. Uh, it also understands how things go the way they are, and they tend to always go the same way even with different clans and different pieces of lore and different types of events, we understand that these things are doing this to reinforce the power structure. And that's how the game is designed. And it's the assumptions of the setting. If you have a better, more critical uh, relationship with the setting, you know how to get it to do the thing that you want it to do. But uh, that is something that, uh, again, needs some critical analysis. Uh, we are... I am approaching this from a value-neutral perspective of understanding why things are the way it is. Less value-neutral is, for example, if you think about that uh, disaster capitalism has mirrors in the setting, you can think which other elements of neoliberalism have mirrors in the setting. And when you go into the underrepresented of certain minorities, how to weigh that outcasts from society are portrayed in the game, how class and caste violence are presented in the game, you have to ask yourself, why are these elements of the game? And more important, why do I want them in the game? And is that a legitimate reason for them to be there? Or is this... Uh, heavily poisoned by capitalism realism that I cannot think of another way to doing this for L5R to still be L5R that because it is a product of the end of history phase of capitalism that you know their society has reached its peaks all we have to do is adjust budgets that that's how L5R is also reflecting that or am I bigotry and prejudice that I have internalized it? I'm using this setting and its similarities to project them into there. I think it's, it's very good to ask yourself, why do you feel the need of certain things being on the game? Which is a point that we keep bringing up on every single conversation. What? Us? Ask, ask, why do you think that needs to be there? <laughs> the the people, <laughs> the show that has like, us two being like, 
the the disabled queer Europeans arguing constantly with people. <laughs> we might have to cut me saying that out. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the 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 I mean, it's almost like just I mean, Charlie, with your strong opinions. Do you have something where you talk about how various settings handle the the disabled? I mean, and disability. I, I would never. I would never voice my opinions about about that anywhere. No. <laughs> and I mean, don't be silly. <laughs> you know, I, I I may not be notable for it, but I'm a very angry man with lots of opinions, and I'll yell at clouds if I have to. You know, it's not like uh, last week there weren't. Uh, 40 minutes of unrecorded audio of me and, and a certain other person who shall remain nameless just shitting on various settings lore and discussing the fact that the best lore is lore that you don't care about. That's not a thing that happens. And anyone who claims otherwise is a class traitor. Um, but speaking of class... I do think it's important that before we really sit down and start, you know, crushing the neoliberalism points out of L5R, maybe we should talk about how we got to where we are. Yeah. For you to get why L5R do be like that, when asked to ask how L5R is the way it is. And a lot of, it's very easy to blame. Uh, L5R on uh, John Wick and pretty much everyone that has ever criticized L5R has broke up the sacred cows and the wikism that are still in the game today you don't need us to, to tell you that we are not going to go and saying Wick be, did bad thing, this is bad because we uh, an outer theory of L5R through the lens of week is something that everyone does it. And I think, I think our analysis of L5R, how L5R came to exist, I would rather do it from a materialistic analysis. Uh, because L5R with weak characteristics is ultimately a product of its material context. And ultimately, L5R is a prime example of neoliberalism and its relationship with cultural appropriation. Now, a cultural appropriation is a thing that a lot of people mention, a lot of people think that they understand what it is, but it's actually a very complex matter. So, what do you think when you think cultural appropriation? I mean, that one is very tricky to answer, um, just on the grounds that I'm British. Um, like, it's, it's what we, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a big part of, it's a big part of, um, my nation's history. Um, so when I think in a, in a broader sense of cultural appropriation, I see it as people from the dominant, um, sort of, uh, be dominant isn't the right word, but you know the culture that 
went about saying, hey, everyone changed to be like us, we're going to commit some war crimes now, then taking aspects of um, those cultures that they used to and still do um, consider inferior and using it as you know, window dressing or saying, oh, these are, these are cool now because we say so, um, that sort of thing. That's what I think of. Yeah, I... Cultural appropriation is always been, at least to me, the the capitalist window dressing of a culture. You know... I'm trying to think of an example that isn't going to sound terrible. But suffice to say that it's to me when you see something that you're like, you know, the PF Chang's TV dinners. It's the Asian font on them. The fact that every time you'll see an ad for one, it's, you know, all of the hallmarks of showing this is an Asian TV dinner when you know for a fact that that corporation is run by, and I say this as someone who is a white cisgender man, that's run by a bunch of dudes who look like me, who just know like, if they if people see this font and this ad, they'll buy it because they'll think it'll be, you know, Asian cuisine. I think both of you show how deep neoliberal thinking and capitalism realism taints everything that we see in the world because that is those definitions they are very accurate to describe how cultural uh, appropriation operates on uh, capitalism and how it absolutely thrives as a, a mechanism of control and oppression and exploitation in the neoliberal model of organizing society. Uh, cultural appropriation, you know, that's what most people think, exactly how it is used today and how it has to be used to extract value in a neoliberal way. So everyone is a bit defensive when someone that they like is attacked of being cultural appropriation or their behavior is called attack, called as such which there is no reason to, because cultural appropriation actually is a value neutral, divorced from such context. It is the process how there has been contact and sharing and mutation and transference of culture between different societies, between different groups. At its core, for there to be cultural uh, appropriation, you need to have an in-group, an out-group. Then you have to have the culture of the in-group that is made into artistic or non-artistic uh, artifacts that are then used by the out-group. The point is clear that the potential for exploitation is enormous of this especially on the current socioeconomic framework. Because if the cultural in-group, which produces this culture, which has these cultural artifacts associated with their identity, if they are marginalized or exploited by the out-group, 
then those members of the outgroup, when they conduct cultural appropriation, they are integrating and extracting all the value that the in-group gets. So it's perpetuating their exploitation. This is especially too when cultural, uh, cultural artifacts are made into cult- a cultural propriety, and then it's subjected to the laws of the art group, which often are used to marginalize further the in-group, which is associated and created the culture, which then they are further alienated from their own culture. And this is even worse in neoliberalism uh, because it is a system where everything is commodified. So you know that every single every single cultural artifact of an in-group, be it uh, queer people, disabled, certain culture, is going to be shred to the machine and transformed into a commodity to be sold and consumed. And all the profits and rents that are collected from these, they all go to the outgrow. It's like the example that you say. Uh, it's always going to these she sees white old men because they are the ones through which the outgroup funnels its revenue. But this is not because cultural appropriation happens. Cultural appropriation is, again, is a, a normal process of uh, transference of culture. The problem is, despite it being a neutral premise, it reinforces existing power dynamics and the hierarchies that exist between the in and out group. If the out group is oppressing the other, is exploiting the other, this reinforces its own exploitation and it feeds on its cycle. So cultural appropriation is often used to both profit from harm and to create more harm. And I mean, that's, you know, where, you know, cultural appropriation done naturally as it occurs when a culture adults adopts another culture ideas. That's fine. That happens. That's the nature of things. Um, But when it becomes the idea that you're using it not just to exchange ideas, but when you're especially harnessing the power of cultural appropriation to create more profits is when it starts to become a little dangerous. Um, you know, we've meant, I mentioned the PF Chang's example, but we've got everything from the era in the late eighties and nineties of, you know, the first, after the first wave of Kung Fu movies and, you know, martial arts movies that came out of the, Asian markets to America and the fact that they flew off the shelves, um, we started to see the American takes on them uh, from the excellent, because I know it's a basic ass movie, but I will fight to the death for how good the karate kit, the first karate kit is. Um, I will not take any critique on this to the terrible of three ninjas. And all of them do have varying levels of cultural appropriation. Yeah, I think you bring a good point because the 80s and 90s were the prime time for uh, for cultural appropriation by neoliberalism. And if you want to look into these two decades, it's easy to understand why neoliberalism takes so well to cultural appropriation as a means of exploitation. 
after all, there are only so many markets you can expand to. And uh, these, as more countries, they are controlled by the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. There needs to be new frontiers because that's how liberalism in general works. You're always going to need to move, move new markets because instead of adding, addressing the problems, you just keep moving the ball ahead. And a space in which they started a, a cro- encroaching has been uh, the last things that we can consider commons, the, the very few things that have still not been included into public or private property the things that are from common use, and that's both the general intellect, all the agglomeration of all the knowledge of humanity that has been passed to us, the shared cultures, and again, the cultural artifacts. And because this is the, the final frontier of appropriation, the final commons to compartmentalize the copyright, uh, and so on and so on, this is something that has been carved and sold by neoliberalism since the 80s. And you see that everywhere. And you see that on the tech pros that follow the Californian Silicon uh, Valley ideology. We see that on patent trolling. We see that on uh, copyright bullshit that we have on these mega media empires. We have the, all these rent-seeking behavior of products as anyone that has the subscription to any Adobe product knows. And this is then everywhere. And this all involves the commodification of an absurd amount of cultural products. And it does not care which groups it was integral for. It's all extracting from in-groups to the benefit of uh, stockholders of an out-group. And the more marginalized the group is, uh, the easier the exploitation it is. So it it really it removes any sense of uh, parity in the process of uh, cultural transmission. And we can find plenty of uh, examples. Uh, any piece of culture that you can look, you will see cultural appropriation there, which is not inherently bad. Again, this is value neutral. The problem is that in neoliberalism, that phenomenon of cultural appropriation that you are seeing, it was used to perpetuate harm and generate profits at the expense of this very same people that generate and are associated with that cultural artifact. But the best example has to be uh, things on the things on the nineties, uh, like the fetishization of ethnic food, uh, movies and animations, and especially the campaigns run by Coca Cola and other stuff about world music and uh, mainstreamization of musical genre genres that were previously associated with racialized communities and. Uh, associated to their own identity and cultural uh, and cultural life that have been completely alienated them to become jingles for commercials. And uh, those people, they don't get royalties, they don't get any compensation, and they have no say of how their cultural artifacts are used. I mean, yeah, and that is a super big, you know, like... The dangers of cultural appropriation really do 
get hammered home when you look at some of these marginalized communities where you'll see oh one minute uh so the danger of cultural appropriation in marginalized communities is really obvious you can see it i mean you know everyone talks the, the most com- one of those common hot takes you'll see in america that isn't a hot take it's a warm take is the rock and roll scene you know the fact that it was straight up cultural appropriation of rhythm and blues and you could see how badly that could damage a community because it absolutely was that's inarguable and when that music was taken, not only does it change the identity, that music is connected with identities of a people, and the fact that the people who pioneer these musics are left penniless, while the people who appropriate it are living in mansions. It is an ugly, ugly, neoliberal-as-hell system. Um, and to go hand-in-hand, hand, and the next you know, point that Ludo makes an excellent point about with the cultural appropriation is the idea of race fetishism racism and scapegoats yeah before i ramble into that uh i uh, my experience from that is an outsider is as someone that grew out of outside of the cultural hegemony uh, i don't have that close relation to it so I have more from the angle of cultures that are fetishized themselves uh, and seeing that process. So I am uh, kind of curious what uh, the two of you have to say about, uh, well, basically being 90s kids and uh, how uh, fetishization was basically ubiquitous in the 90s. I mean, there's, you could probably go on uh, on whole uh, related uh, topics on this um, potentially, um, but I uh, didn't grow up in um, in the UK. Uh, some of my my formative years and uh, the bulk of my formative years in the nineties, I actually lived in Saudi Arabia, um, and most of the media that we consumed was from the eighties. <laughs> um, because it had a lot of what we had um, had to go through um, the censorship sort of system that they had set up, you know, just to make sure that nobody in the cartoon uh, was wearing anything skimpy. So like a lot of the cartoons, uh, if they could edit them to make it look like a bodysuit instead of like a chainmail bikini or whatever, um, you'd get that. Um, a lot of music. Um, would be older because uh, when you went to buy the CD, you would have um, some of the songs uh, cut, some of the lyrics uh, would be blanked out in the book in the CD. Uh, You'd have images would be blacked out if they were showing like, um, you know, a woman's midriff or something. Um, So I can't really talk about the 90s because like I came back to England in 98 and was immediately kind of, plunged into it's almost the millennium <laughs> um so i missed out on a lot of the uh you know typical british kid uh 90s experience um though i do acknowledge like yes i did grow up in saudi arabia it was it was still in a, a military compound i was not living the same life at all 
that a person um, from Saudi Arabia would have lived. Uh, it was more of just a kind of a slight time travel experience, I suppose, in terms of media. You see, on the distinct other hand, I grew up in the suburbs of America in the 90s. Um, so, the idea of cultural fetishism, of uh, all of the rest of this, I'm, I'd, I'd, I'd like to say I'm intimately familiar with it, you know, um, from the concepts I mean, and Ludo's going to touch on a bunch of them very rapidly soon, so I don't want to spoil too much, but I mean, the animation that entered in the 90s, the stuff that I, as one of the Never Forget 90s kids, remembers having revisited a lot of it as an adult. Um, I mean, it was ubiquitous like i can't come up with any examples off the top of my head but it definitely it was everywhere um and i mean it it still is from the and i mean it, it's it's so hard to articulate because my brain is currently a sponge instead of meat um but yeah, as as the exact opposite of Charlie, as someone who was right in the reeds, shall we say, of the 90s and the new millennium leading up to it. Yeah, I mean, Japanese tractors, um, all of it. And I mean, I'm in a relatively rural area. I'm in the suburbs, but of a rural suburb. It's still everywhere here. Yeah, and because we are doing a materialism, we have to ask ourselves, how does this fetishism relate with material conditions? And if we think about it, I mean, neoliberalism started doing its thing. It started destroying the public sector, transferring everything to the private sector. It was moving along with markets. So it was moving a lot of manufacture to either outsource it to other companies or sent to offshores. And for the for the centers of the uh, hegemony for the imperial cores or as others might call it the good old USA it was making things worse for workers again things were going overseas they had to compete for more precarious uh, labor conditions things were becoming bad it was great for uh, the great fortunes that we're thriving on this exploitation, but neoliberalism, the benefits of it, the alleged benefits that Reagan and Thatcher touted, they were not coming. And of course, material analysis is something that uh, any conservative does not want their population to be doing. So instead of admitting that the system was working as designed and fleecing every work for which they were worth while obliterating their communities, as well as the support networks that they relied on, as well as social security, they started presenting scapegoats. And this was seen a lot with uh, 
with uh, the Asian markets, especially with Japan and later with China. Apparently, if you make a toaster or a camera in a Japanese factory, this somehow means that we welcome our new Japanese overlords. That uh, because consumer electronics are done on Japan, this means they're going to rule over us. That was the mentality that was common during the area. Uh, the area that that you were the things that happened to you you know you losing your job in the mines or at the steel plant it was not because of neoliberalism it was not because of regonomics no it was because the japanese economic miracle and there was special emphasis in the japanese part it's like it's these incrustables orientals that uh, for some reason they they are taking our jobs no, no, there was not any material analysis. It was blatant dehumanization and fetishization and ordering of culture. Uh, it conveniently ignored that the same thing was happening in Germany. There was another economic mar miracle going at the same point in which you would see an increase of a lot of industries in Germany, a lot of them moving from the good USA. But for some reason, that does not seem to cause the same reaction. I mean, the fact that both nations, they had achieved conquest by labor movements that created powerful, educated, capable workforce that uh, forced uh, companies to adopt more democratic and more efficient modes of production, small implementations that benefited the quality of life of the workers with increased productivity. That's both countries managed to harvest the success of that. That, is, that was irrelevant. Surely that cannot be the reason. There must be something essential to the Japanese nature or culture to justify it. Why they are better workers, why they have more capital. Certainly it cannot be because of organized labor and the conquest theirs. No, 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 no. It has something unique to the Japanese. And you add that to an unhealthy dose of cultural appropriation, which Brad gave good examples. And you have these anxieties that start manifesting itself uh, through fetish. And uh, these anxieties, these ideas, they are projected upon a Russian... They are projected into a racialized order. And they are doing that to a lot of Asian cultures uh, during this period of time. And we could see the, the fruits in all forms of media. We could see on things like Shadowrun or Blade Runner, where the end of history uh, ideology of the 90s was replacing capital neo-feudalism you know, the logical consequence of neoliberalism structured to the infinite with a weird fear about Asian supremacy. And it was a very weird supremacy because, again, because of the toxicity of uh, neoliberalism thinking, they could just imagine the same structures going on forever 
And this includes how the media was made for and whatnot. So we result on these weird, especially cyberpunk things full with signifiers of Asian culture appropriated in movies where you can barely see any Asians. And that was the environment. And L5R was born in this environment. It was shaped by these material conditions. No matter what was the original intent of Wick or of the other writers, whether they were aware or not, the moment the game entered in contact with the audience, it was subjected to these ideas. Because everyone in America was immersed in the apex era of this commodified cultural appropriation, of this fetishization of Asian culture, and these extreme anxieties about Asian superpowers. And, you know, this does, in fact, boil over into one of the most popular alternate L5R settings. And, it even, and Ludo touched on briefly by mentioning, you know, the, the fact that in Shadowrun and in various other cyberpunk media, you'll, I mean, it's, it's a running joke. And this, and I love the cyberpunk genre. I, you know, like we just discussed with L5R, of course, there's the classic. Cyberpunk sucks, but it's so cool. Um, uh, well, I don't have a problem with cyberpunk. I have a problem with neon liberalism. That, that's, we could do a whole other episode discussing that. Um, but stereotypically, your five cyberpunk megacorps, there's the high-tech one, the biotech company, the arms company, the Asian one, and the German one. You know, I mean, and there's probably a reason for this. You know, Ludo may have, I mean, is it coincidental that most of these settings emerge in the 90s and... Like Ludo pointed out, there was a sudden boom in tech in companies and labor in those areas. But there's also Rokugan 2000, which I actually was unaware of until it was mentioned in our secret Discord channels for Crimson Gold and Agonies. And I am someone, I inhale RPG books. So I'm like, I'll read this alternate setting. I love alternate settings. And it reposits all of the clans from L5R as Zaibatsu-style megacorps in a future time. Um, and I mean, that is an interesting enough idea, I suppose. But Ludo also informed me of the follow-up interesting fact I didn't know about Cyberpunk, about Cyberpunk, L5R2000. Yeah, uh, the creator of uh, of uh, Rokugan 2000 was Rich Wolf, which became, soon after its creation, one of the lead designers of L5R. And whether or not he has stepped a lot into these anxieties in uh, Rokugan 2000, and he certainly brought this perspective into the mainline. And someone that clearly could read these anxieties and knew how it would shape 
the world of Rakugan was crucial in developing the basically the first arcs, which then eventually would determine a lot about what L5R is, and more important, how events in Rokugan tend to go. And this created two layers of imprint. We had the, the imprint that every single piece of culture that was created in the 90s in the cultural hegemony of the United States was soaked in neoliberalism. That's beyond argument. And it is beyond arguments that every single RPG ever created in the modern era has created in a world where neoliberalism is the dominant ideology. Those effects cannot be denied. But more important, neoliberalism and the different ways it might present itself on different settings that was shown on Rokugan 2000 shaped the early meta of L5R. And the question is, how, during the crucial part of development of the lore and the story of L5R, the mix of these anxieties around the world and on the manifestation in the meta, how have they shaped the world of Rokugan and L5R? How much of it is part of the weird structure of the Emerald Empire? So, um, and you know, L5R as a whole is a setting that introduced some things as you know me first reading it that no other setting was doing at the time um, and if we stick to the proposed economic goals of neoliberalism the entire point we're trying to make is ridiculous it's not a market oriented setting it imposes austerity and privatization and Increased economic liberal, increased economic liberalization. But if we look at some of the ideology, um, in the world that helps creates create desires, then we can find some interesting things to consider. Yeah, I think that is very common. On and I keep mentioning it. I keep mentioning the end of history, uh, the ideology of no ideology. This is basically the principle that neoliberalism is value neutral. It is just the way things are. As Thatcher says, there is no alternative. It is how things are. When you do something to favor uh, neoliberalism, you're doing it neutrally. Uh, you're just following nature. You're just following the proper order of things. And I touched this point as I was looking into, into Crimson Gold Agonies and working on the setting. And other than three pieces of lore, the beginning status of the, of the Emerald Empire is very similar to everything published on uh, uh, Fantasy Flights games. And one of the things that changed was the death of Doji Satsume. Because I realized that I did not want to use the canon decision, which we can go into details that, but I don't find satisfying. So instead, I just kept every single event like what happened including a Doji Satsume criticizing both of the Imperial Hairs. Now, that was just a minor detail on, 
on the fiction of fantasy flight games. But I followed that to the logical conclusion. And uh, when you have the second most important and powerful person in the empire openly criticizing the, well, one of them is going to be the next emperor, there is this anxiety that uh, arises that uh, this person may make the next emperor their puppet. And uh, following the logic of this, it became obvious that uh, uh, before there could be a transition of power between emperors, Doji Satsumi had to go. And the thing that I kept thinking about the people that were involved in this is, that is not how anyone in, well, how your average noble in uh, Rakugan will think. Because they will assure that there will be these norms that will be followed. The Emerald Champion is always going to be the loyal Prime Minister of the Emperor. There will be a transition of power. The one is not the puppet of other. One is going to always be the subject. No matter how things change in practical terms, there is these kind of norms that are always going to be done. And even recognizing that things could be then in other way that can be a danger, you would already have to be thinking outside of the box. And this made me realize that even the position of being a reactionary conservative person in Rokugan is rare. Because most of the people, they just reinforce it without questioning. It is the normal thing to do. They don't even think that there is a threat. You know, they don't see that there is a constant threat to the class and caste system. They don't see it as there can be this outside threat. They don't see that there can be a reverse of the hierarchy. So even being aware that this is a thing that is in danger, that needs protecting, you already have to have to start questioning the structure. And this is pretty unusual on uh, on feudal or theocratic systems because those systems, they know very well their relationship with power. They are very aware and they often create extensive and rich ideology and mythology that uses to justify itself. But Drakken is not like that. Otherwise, the necessity to defend the actual order will not be a radical position. The mythologies like the the Leviathan, the Great Chain of Being, Divine Command Theory, Divine Right, Mandate of Heaven, and so on and so on, these are all things that have been created and preserved to justify the order constantly. Because there is this idea that there is an implicit tendency to contest it, to contest the way that things are. There are threats. There are other ideologies. There are other ways of dreaming the world to be. And so you need to get this grand narrative. Rokugan, for such a fantastic setting, is pretty simple one. It has an origin myth that mirrors the world as it is today, but Unlike most mythology, it does not explain how the world came to be as it is. 
it reflects it. It's saying things are always like this. Things were like this on heaven. Things are like this on earth. There is an unbroken, continuous thread. This is not the best way. This is not Venkers in other ways. No. This is as things are. There is a culture of stasis, of neutralizing the structures of power. Again, as things that they are. There is not even the consideration that there are other alternatives over this one being better. It is, there is no alternative. History is heavily censored, so you know that this is not something natural. We know that this is something tailored, that there is an active effort from both the imperial families and the Shasuru and the Ikoma to make history like this, to make it seem like natural. Now, they could much easier have this grand narrative that they tell people and everyone believes on. That's how uh, a theocratic or feudal system historically tends to go. But instead, they neutralize it. And this is further neutralized that blasphemy and theological divergence being one and the same. The existence of other cultures and even sentient species with their own different cosmologies is suppressed. And even when a new god ascends, they are just as naturalized as anything else. And a fortune that was ascended three years ago, it is seen as being always there, always normal. So this celestial order, this system that makes the Emerald Empire, it's not presented as an ideology, even if it's clearly an ideology. It sets itself as a non-ideology, the way things are. And this is neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is the only ideology that uh, protects itself by declaring itself a non-ideology. It's just reasonable economics. It's just reasonable policy. This is value neutral. And killing any chance of imagining or dreaming other ideologies. And this is seen by the end of history philosophy as well as the, the toxicity of capitalism realism, in which uh, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. And it's the same thing on uh, Rokuga. It has been the end of history since Fulang was filled away. Rokugan has been living on the end of history for the last thousand years. And it's easier to imagine the end of the world by the unleash of Fulang or the invasion of the Shadowlands than it is to imagine the end of the Celestial Order. Well, you're not allowed to envision the end of the Celestial Order, because then what if people consider what not having the Celestial Order might look like? We can't have that. Yeah, but again, people wanting more. Yeah, but again, that is how a feudal or, or, a, uh, or a theocratic system will do, you know, that there is a divine uh, command for them to rule on behalf of the gods, or that it is the divine right of kings. It, that would be how they use it, how they defeat other ideologies. They defend themselves by, like you say, preventing that people even imagine other ideologies are possible. I mean, I do think it's very telling, and it's one of the weird parts of the ideologies and religions of Rokugan, um, 
is that there is not an Armageddon myth. Every major religion that I can think of off the top of my head and every major mythology that has been studied with a couple of glaring exceptions have some sort of, well, this is how the world is going to end one day mythology to them. Okay. I mean, there's not even a creation myth. Right. There's no. I mean, because the creation myth on Rokugan is explaining how things are the way that they are. It does not create. You know, Lord Moon and and Lady Sun existed and already had a court and already had the same hierarchy that exists in the world. It's just. It's just an acknowledgement that the world has always been like this. It's not a meat making. Right. Um. And I think just as interestingly, um, a lot of people who were, and this is a common thread, are were surprised at a certain um, samurai-themed game that came out earlier in the year of 2020, and how the peasantry were a bit shocked to see samurai. And it brings up a big contrast between historical feudal societies and L5R. In historical feudal society, the peasantry didn't interact with the gentry often at all. You might have an individual peasantry member who would interact more frequently, but it was usually once a year at tax time. And then it was member of the landed gentry shows up lays claim to whatever their share of your goods are, takes it and leaves, and that's great. Uh, to the point where if you look at various writings such of the time, um, I mean, we joke a lot in the Discord and such about the fact that your sa- local samurai visiting you is when your manager comes in at work. You sigh, you make sure you're doing something busy so that they don't see you slacking off. And wait for them to leave. The only difference is your manager happens to carry a five-foot razor blade. Um, Rokugan is very different. Rokugan instead has a setting that's the upper levels of the setting are focused very much on regulating the behavior of individuals. I mean, there's not one police force. There's one uh, police force for all sorts of imperial level crimes. Each clan polices their own lands. You have a second form of religious police involving the Phoenix's Inquisitors, not to mention the Scorpion's um, Black Watch and the various other groups. It creates kind of a weird thought process when you look at how much people are regulating the behavior of individuals that in history, I mean, peasants were kind of just allowed to, for lack of a better term, as long as they did their job and taxes arrived on time, the nobility didn't care. Yeah, this is a good time to mention Foucault, because this is basically what he describes as a disciplinary society, which is, uh, it is something that emerged because of both the needs of capitalism and uh, uh, to prepare societies to accept capitalism, as well as the level of control that capitalism allowed over society. Uh, 
And we see these structures on Rokugan, as you are saying. This is a society that is obsessed about controlling the individual, which would be, you know, the focus on biopower of Foucault. Basically, that there are countless prisons in Rokugan. Everything in Rokugan is like a prison, which is the, the mark of a disciplinarian society. I mean, consider the fact that, according to canon, you in Rokugan cannot travel without the proper paperwork signed and stamped by your local lord or an emerald magistrate. Um, and it leads, I mean, that's just a simple thing, whereas peasants, I mean, until late in the Middle Ages, had a, great, a decent amount of freedom of movement. You end up in a unique situation because you also have the fact that the ability to manipulate fate and spirits and how much they can dictate one's life, one's afterlife even, really puts power in a strong way focused downward. Yeah, it's as you said, there was to be plenty of freedom even during the most of the medieval period, it was only on the early modern age and with the, the rise of uh, mercantilism and the beginnings of, new, uh, of liberalism that uh, serfdom started to being strongly regulated. Because again, you needed to create these regional markets and you needed to restrain the mobility between them. And uh, these removed power uh, into large economic uh, and uh, national institutions in favor of local freedoms and intermediaries. And again, we see in Rokugan structures that are much later in terms of uh, uh, economic and social control. And uh, it applies even in the spiritual realm. I mean, and it it is very strange how it's focused. And not even that, a lot of these relationships set up in Rokugan are antagonistic just by nature. I mean, when you establish some the powers of the samurai cast so essentially, and then have them lorded over the peasant caste who in turn are told we are told lord their power over the untouchable caste it creates an entirely a society that's entirely antagonistic towards each other where respect is given because you're scared yeah and again because they create disasters that uh, you need to rely on them for you to get succor from the disasters you need uh, you need to have uh, samurai warriors uh, to give you relief. Uh, otherwise, military violence is going to be applied to you. You're going to need to rely on their priests because they remove from your community the ability to manage yourself spiritual threats. And they keep the monopoly to you to the points in which they kidnap children to perpetuate these goals. Uh, and and uh, the same thing, thing economically, and so on and so on. So and they use all these things to to maintain this control. I think it's entirely impossible to discuss all of these 
elements of Rokugan's neoliberalism without talking about the neoliberal antagonists of Rokugan. You know? The Kolot. Now, uh, everyone feels differently about the Kolot. I actually happen to really like them as an antagonist group. So, just for those of you who are unfamiliar, the Kolot are a secret society um, that is dedicated to removing the... Inf- this is what we used to know about them. Fifth edition, I don't know how much more is confirmed anymore. Um, their primary focus, as far as we still understand, is that they want to take the power of spirits and faith magic out of ruling humankind. They believe that man should be ruled by man. Um, and they do this in some interesting ways. Um, Primarily being a secret society that manipulates merchants. And of course, there's also some James Bond level tech. And I mean, they're, they're weird. I think they're neat, but they're weird. I, yeah, but the thing is, what, the, what do they want? Right. Uh, you, you say that that is philosophy, but in practical terms, what they want. Because they won. They yeah. won once. Uh, uh, the very sun and moon were replaced by mortals. Uh, mortal ruled over the empire. They they won during the Tatura dynasty. Right. What did it change? Nothing, because the world is already neoliberal. Right. Nothing has changed. The Kolot doesn't need to exist in the way it does because the Kolot has all... I mean... The Kolot doesn't need to have some ancillary goal so much as they should just want to make a ton of money. You know, one of the jokes we made last week that we didn't catch on uh, audio that would be great to put in right, you know, as a clip as part of this episode is the fact that, you know, you can also see the attitude toward the Kolot change as additions went on. The Kolot went from in the first in first edition where they first appeared to a bunch of crazy people who believe in something crazy to its second edition, the guys who are kind of right, to its third edition, to the guys who are actually right, to the fourth edition, to winning, and then they didn't know what to do with them. It It's a unique problem because they should be a fascinating antagonist group, but you can start to see the problem with how merchants fit into Rokugan through the Kolot, because they're supposed to represent these you know, merchants according to the caste system Rokugan subscribes to are supposed to be oppressed. They're supposed to need a samurai patron to protect them. And yet, you can see things like the fact that there's merchants everywhere, whereas if that were the case, if (laughs) when people are oppressed, they tend to be fewer and fewer places at a time. And the fact that you also see things like stipends. A samurai's lord is supposed to provide for him everything and you have a shadow market though that exists where people are given stipends that they can buy things from which means that as much as merchants are supposed and the ideal i think it might have been trying to get across is that well you hate this person but you come to rely on them but if the merchants also control the flow of rice do why are the samurai cast at all in charge of the merchants? The merchants decide who starves and who doesn't. Unless we take this as a greater look at the fact that 
if Rogan's supposed to be a neoliberal setting, one of the most hard takes on neoliberalism, one of the most common things they want is a deregulation of market, which the merchants have. You don't have the samurai FDA checking food to make sure you're not sliding in wood grain with rice. You know, you don't have samurai weapons inspectors making sure that armor and weapons are safe for their Ashigaru. It just, they trust the merchants to do their job? Yeah, and the reason why merchants fit so weirdly, because at some point they are supposed to reflect how merchants were in what societies before liberalism, how merchants work without a banking system, uh, and uh, how merchants and the function of merchants in society. Uh, but uh, it's like you say, they basically they behave at the best like mercantilism arms of the of the noble class. And this comes with the weird relationship with uh, Rokugan has with hierarchy and uh, community as well as uh, alienation. I, in most feudal or pre-industrial societies, it's like you said, there was little power exerted over the individual. And most communities, most peoples, they were able to self-manage in an autonomous manner. They organized how their family operated, how their commune operated, how their social club operated, how their trade union operated, how their clan, and so on and so on. It was interacting with the noble for the taxes. Uh, or with figures of authority in terms of civil defenses and or, or the superior regional powers for things uh, on a large scale. But because the the game has such number of disciplinarian elements, from making sure that you're not doing any blasphemy, making sure that you have your travel papers, to make sure that the mind is correct, to make sure that you get the the proper collection of taxes. These affects everything. And especially affects player characters. Because player characters are gonna always be li- layered and sliced between multiple hierarchies, each of them coercing their behavior. My loyalty to the Empire at all, my, uh, my loyalty to my lord, my loyalty to my immediate superior, my loyalty to my clan, my loyalty to my family, my loyalty to myself. Uh, you occupy different positions in different hierarchies, and that is going to shape your behavior. And this is weird, because, because of the focus of the setting in uh, families and clans, you would expect them to be more central to the characters rather than following hierarchy. You would expect to be more parity, to be more feedback, to I'm a part of a family or a clan. I'm an individual here. I have some say here. I get something. But that actually plays second fiddle because other than general class solidarity between the nobility, most of the time, clans and families, they offer obstacles to cooperation rather than actually giving you something. And more often than not, you will be competing even with members of your family and clan. 
and it becomes really hard to develop relationships between characters. And again, this is a thing that uh, is a trait of neoliberalism, this destruction of uh, of uh, community, that every relationship between individuals is transactional. It is even friendship. It is taught in terms of what can I get from this relationship? And this is, again, this is really odd. This is a historical. This is not your human being's work. This is a projection that is backed into the system because of neoliberal poisoning. And the most, uh, the best example of this is uh, is uh, social attributes, especially honor, in which they are basically social credit. They are the neoliberal idea of the worth of a human being, what they can produce, what they give to gain. And basically, honor, rather than measuring anything on behavior or any exoteric meaning, or uh, and is, if you look behind, beyond the... Ludo, I think we lost you. Ludo's on mute. You have okay. uh, you have this uh, this social credit. You have this utility to the clan that is represented by your honor score. It is your social score. And again, this is extremely neoliberal. And I think. Everyone must have had the experiences with that in which this alienation from their own family and clan, their lack of connections, the difficulty making friendship with characters, that must have come manifest during your during game with uh, different characters, no? I mean, you know, that's quite literally one of the biggest points of you know, this is a spoiler for anyone who's listening. I mean, it's already been joked about. And, you know, part of our running joke with Minoru is he's the worst scorpion ever because he doesn't fit in with the rest of his clan. He's willing to do he's willing to do some of the normal scorpion things, but feels very disenfranchised, feels a little jealous of the other clans not having to fit into his clan's particular idea of honor and respect. I don't think I've ever been in a game where there hasn't been this this undercurrent of people from different clans and sometimes different families within the same clan just not getting one another um because of you know those those huge underlying differences and in interpretations of um what even like similar or same duties might involve um like i think it's a it's a core focus i think like even even if you're doing a mono clan game you're still going to have the uh you know the family you know of one character is going to have a completely different approach to everything than the family of another um it it causes a lot of divisions um you know, moves the moves the story and the drama on a little bit, or at least it gives you points that some story and drama can 
spring from, I guess. But yeah, I've never been in one where everybody's like, oh yeah, cool, we're all on the same page. But I mean, I think it goes a bit from that, because when was the last time that you basically had to give something in exchange? There was some kind of transaction going on, even with people that for all purposes, you are on the same side, you are the same family, you are on the same clan. When was the last time that your character just got something because someone wanted to be their friend? God, it's... I think it's one of those things that I've been in some games where everybody played very optimistically and, and that kind of did happen, but yeah, it, it, it's not as, it's not really anywhere near as common as, as the idea that, oh, I'll, I'll, you know, give you this gift. You give me this gift. Um, yeah, the game is very set up for transactions in, um social exchanges as opposed to this is for the hell of it like even even um uh this is like a a background thing um but even like um a great gesture um of thanks um you know that that somebody might show to somebody uh in a show that maybe i'm on um it's still basically like a okay i you know i don't owe you anymore it can still very easily be seen as that it's like you know debts paid as, even if it's also a gesture of appreciation yeah i can't think of a time um i mean i haven't gotten as much our play experience as others but even in my experience as a game master i can't think of a time Wherein my players just had genuine friendship offered to them. Uh, and Charlie, even on the, your, the most you know, casual, friendly games, I have a follow-up question on that. Even on that, how much things that... Uh, actually matter that you know not having access to it later or to negotiate with someone later would actually put you in a worse position when something that materially matters was actually freely given i'm trying to think it's <sighs> you know I don't know if this counts, but like a wedding gift of a sword, a sword could matter. But again, like it's a wedding gift, there's an expectation there's going to be a wedding gift. It's not given 100%. So yeah, I, I don't think I have any examples of that. Even in like the super friendly, casual, like let's all hang out games. Yeah, but uh, you know, there is this expectation because the game supposes that there are that's why you have on their duty to them because these are your social s structures these are your support networks and they should be the one you know lending you material support as well as emotional support but when is the last thing that you get something from your family from your clan from your institution even even uh, even the weird way that uh, 
that uh, that Rakugan handles the, the vassalage is very is very capitalist. It is you get uh, a stipend and you get food and you get the material needed for you to do your work. Like it is, and for in exchange for that, you get you give loyalty. It is extremely transactional, which is again, it's very weird. A point, um, a point of view of uh, history, and it creates this weird disconnect. It is uh, basically you own the loyalty to the people that materially is a pure chain. Yeah, thinking on it, the only <sighs> no, no, I thought it was. I thought I thought it was relevant, but I don't think it is. So never mind. My apologies. Yeah, and um, and of course, I mean there are critics that you can levy to this model. Uh, I think Charlie brought a good point. You know, there should be a private property. There should be there should be these kind of markets for uh, for neoliberalism to exist and. The question that comes from that is that uh, who benefits from it? And if there is no capital benefit, who is who is benefiting from this system existing? And what do you think about this criticism? That uh, neoliberalism cannot exist in Rokukan because there are no clear-cut capital and private property that is accumulated. These obvious benefits. I mean, we did already briefly touch on the fact that, I mean, theoretically, anyone who's a savvy enough rice broker can benefit. You know the. And that could even lead to even worse disaster capitalism. You know, if you're a samurai whose family is a little broke and you detect that there's going to be a big old tsunami hitting the the empire's bread box, are, is it better for you to inform them and save hundreds of thousands of lives or to buy up as much rice speculation as you can because you know in a couple of weeks, it'll be worth a lot of money. And you can bail out your broke family. Um, so it benefits people who are savvy um, in a universe where there's wizards who can accurately predict the future. It benefits them significantly. Um, so it can still benefit the various clans. Yeah, because the people that have those skills to exploit this, they are tightly regulated and only the noble class. Noble class keeps absolute control of that. Of the ability to capitulate on these things. Right. Um. So you could say that maybe the economy of Rokugan it does not have the traits of the liberalism of the past, the one that we've seen historical, but it certainly has, for one reason or another, the traits of the current one. And by consequence, 
the traits of what modern neoliberalism aspires to be. So it is less feudalism or emerging capitalist states, but uh, it is more about uh, the neoliberal, uh, the neoliberal uh, dream of neo-feudalism that they seem to be on their way to imposing on us. Uh, that uh, Rokugan is neoliberalism being told to picture feudalism applied de novo and the learning to love the sound of a geta stepping on a, a human face for a thousand years as dictated by the celestial will. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that, you know, it's... I went into this when Ludo first proposed this topic, you know, as a, as a bit of a review towards because I really thought that Ludo was kind of, no offense, Ludo, just seeing things that weren't there. And he put together a little document describing a couple of the points we wanted to discuss today. And as I'm looking at it, and even now, more than ever, Ludo, I, I think you're right. It really is, at the end of the day, the neoliberalist, neoliberal, neoliberalist dream. But, you see, a frequent problem with critiques of things you, of creative things is you just talk bad about it for two hours and 16 minutes and end with the audience feeling bad about the fact that they like this thing. And here at CGA, we ain't about that. Um, so what do we get from this look at Rokugan? I think the main thing is that we get a better context. I mean, instead of seeing it as a Fox historical melting plot done by a by an out-group appropriation of an in-group, depicting a feudal system and struggling to make it do what we want to do, which, again, will never work. Because we either move historically and keep fighting the moving pieces, or we go fantastic and we have no fucking idea what we are doing. If we apply a framework, if we apply context, if we see L5R as both a product of neoliberalism and of history, and something that replicates an hyper-real depiction of feudal structure, we can get it to do what we want without breaking our toy. We can actually get very creative with L5R. We can make it, we can take bold, courageous choices. We can have very intricate plots. We can do a lot to study relationships. And for example, we can make it kinder to players. We now know why certain things are there. We can make it more progressive. We can see more inclusive to have more faces and facets, to be more sensitive to cultural inspirations, to reduce alienation. If we understand this, we also understand how certain things are replicated uh, and critically on the game, like the exploitation of the outsider, uh, outsiders of society that actually is tied historically to persecution that were motivated by capital. And then we ask, why do we have this on the game if we don't want to have this society tend to a capitalism? This is it. Maybe we don't need this exploitation to be so, so grave. We don't need this prejudice. We don't need this constant alienation because there is no need to have a permanent underclass. And this comes to mind uh, uh, on... Uh, 
on uh, work the last 1000 years in which there's this uh, powerful uh, uh, paragraph in which uh, Britain abolished slavery on 18%, 20% of the GDP of Britain became from slavery. It's the same thing with neoliberalism and white certain ideas that have impact. And we need to understand their context, how they fit together, and more important, why do we feel the need to have them in the game? And then you start making questions. So, do we need this? There's no more excuses if we have this neoliberal framework. You cannot hide between Orientalism takes, saying, oh, this is accurate to the culture, or this is how it really was historically. No. We need to accept this. There's nothing real about this. It's an hyper-real depiction, a take of feudalism seen through neoliberal eyes. There is nothing natural to this, and actually pretending it is natural, it is a feature, not a bug, of the game. And so if anyone that is familiar with uh, more of my work knows that I worked on uh, Heroes of the Republic, which was basically it was a setting that was created to explore the ideas of uh, modern mythology, namely superheroes, and uh, the ideas about the threat of capital to the democratization of power. It I needed something that was distant because we we have the examples we live on it and uh, the last I could set this story in any of the last 200 year, years but what I found is that it was too close to home that there were a lot of obstacles that prevented people from uh, engaging with uh, with uh, the proposed thesis and about the relationship of democracy and power, as well as the role that capital plays on it, as well as the role of cultural appropriation in both imperialism and capital alienation. So what to, to better explore those ideas without all the, all the baggage, which again would make a lot of people mad, and if I say, if I said that during the 7th century in India, or something like that, I used a very distant time point, about 200,000 years ago, where there will be different alienation. And Heroes of the Republic approaches those questions about how you can have democracy and they will protect it during the period between the First and the Second Punic Wars. And it sees it from the point of view of the Roman Republic as it's entering the end of its mid-period and into the capitalist period of the end of the Republic. It is a setting where we have uh, superheroes tied to the culture and mythology. We have an ever-expanding uh, metropolitan power that is defined by, uh, by cult uh, cultural uh, heterogeneity at the same time that we have the rise of uh, a nobility that prizes itself in certain cultural signifiers appropriated from Hellenistic uh, tutors. Uh, we have the race of militarism during the uh, Scipiot clan. We have the race of uh, imperialism with the first provinces. 
We start to have the first tearings of a slave-based economy. We see the threat of that to the democracy. We see the threat to alienated labor. And more important, we see the rise of the first state-funded uh, and supporting uh, publicani corporations that uh, would basically transform the republic into a capitalist, eventually fascistic state. And having the distance of the 2000, uh, 2000 years, and because nobody can have any direct tie to this, uh, and everyone has enough indirect ties to actually understand, abo- approaching those subjects in those means, in superheroes of the middle of the Roman Republic, was very powerful tool for both analysis, storytelling, and let's be honest, to create a pretty rough setting. L5R can do this much better. L5R can do this not only how we came to be the way we are, L5R can be used to analyze the great dangers of uh, living in a neoliberal society. It can serve to create stories about what it means to rebel in a neurofeudal society. Uh, And, uh, well, this hopefully helps us use the setting better. It uh, helps us make Elfar better. And, uh, well, it helps imagine different worlds, different ways of coming into the future. And for CGA, I think, uh, that uh, this means that the great tsunami that punished the crane lands was the tragedy. The great hail is the farce, and we all know what will be coming. Oh no. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty spent. Yeah. Any closing remarks? <clears throat> um, thank you all for listening. Um, you know how to, you know where to find us if you found this delicious podcastable. Charlie, thank you for being here. Ludo, thank you for taking the lead on this. And if you have any um thoughts about like L5R, um, you know, like uh different philosophies or you know I wouldn't call neoliberalism philosophy in the classical sense but you know if you have anything that you think applies to l5r like tell us let's have like a discussion about it why not let's deep let's dive into that too or you know uh, brad and ludo can dive into it and i'll be like hmm yes tell me in three sentences because i'm a dumbass that will be what we do (laughs) and yeah you know Think about things. You don't have to agree with any of the crap that I said. If you are just thinking about things, I think that's already a success. That's that's aggressive for you to have better games, create better art, and have better history. So see you around. Hopefully the next time we're gonna be more assholes. So many assholes. Wait until we do our lore sucks episode. You won't know what to do with all the assholes we bring into that. Not L5R lore specifically, but lore in general. We've got some, like, our, our, my personal goal with CJ is to serve you both 
delicious, spicy gaming experiences and also some spicy takes on things. Yeah, Lord is dead, and now Auntie Lord is my wife. <laughs> <laughs>